Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Ryan Hackenbracht. We're talking to Ryan about his new book, National Reckonings, The Last Judgment and Literature in Milton's England, just published by Cornell University Press. Ryan is an Associate Professor of English at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Ryan, congratulations on your book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Crawford. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to be here. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. Well, we're looking forward to talking about this book. It's excellent. Uh, and I think it's really doing some important new things in helping us think about how literature and religion interact in this complex and uh, such rich environment as the English Revolution. But before we talk about the book, National Reckonings, could you tell us something about yourself? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I'm uh, a Seattle native. I uh, went to college at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. I uh, went to graduate school at Penn State and worked with the Miltonist Laura Knoppers. Uh, and I moved down here to Texas Tech about five or six years ago. And um, here I specialize in teaching courses on Renaissance literature, primarily poetry and prose. So I teach courses primarily on uh, Milton and Hobbes. Uh, but I cover the 16th century all the way through the 17th. I'm particularly interested in, as you could tell from the book, in uh, the relationship between literature and religion, uh, especially in these earlier periods, what the philosopher Charles Taylor would call a sort of pre-secular period, um, when religion is still very much a part of political thinking and it's kind of pervading every aspect of society. Uh, I'm also interested in Renaissance literature and pop culture. I have an essay, for instance, on uh, Milton and science fiction uh, and Isaac Asimov in the 20th century. Uh, I'm also particularly interested in um, uh, nationalism and political theory. Uh, I'm working on the second book right now on Georgic poetry from Shakespeare to Hilda Doolittle in the 20th century. And... Um, the chapter that I've drafted so far is on Andrew Marvel and looks at, at ideas of sovereignty and how they sort of begin in the 17th century. So Fascinating. Now, we might come back to your next project at the very end, Ryan, uh, sure. if, we have, if we have time to do that. That would be great. So you've been in Lubbock for five, six years uh, and working on this material. Can you tell us something about the background to the book? Why did you decide on this topic and why did you decide in this particular selection of authors to discuss? Sure. Uh, I've always been really fascinated by apocalyptic thought. I grew up as a conservative Baptist. My father's a retired Baptist minister. And I think that even from an early age, uh, when I was in grade school, I was very fascinated by how the expectation of something that hadn't yet happened uh, was sort of shaping real-world politics and real-world social values and things like that. I mean, I remember in Sunday school being taught to... uh, sort of expect that at any moment Christ might appear in the clouds with his angels and with trumpets and all of that descending in glory. And, uh, 
even though I'm not a conservative Baptist anymore, I'm still quite fascinated by um, how that kind of expectation of what's essentially a non-real event, something that hasn't occurred yet, um, uh, the kind of purchase that that has on the way that people think and on the way that people interact with one another. Um, you can see this, for instance, today in um, the way that uh, Christian evangelicals and fundamentals tend to focus on um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the sense that oftentimes, not always, but sometimes uh, evangelical support of uh, the one nation Jewish state uh, is knowingly or, or unknowingly derived from revelation and from this expectation that at the end of the world, in order for Christ to return, the Jews sort of have to regain their homeland. Um, and uh, I've just been always interested with how prophecy has a way of sort of shaping policy in that way um, and changing the way people think about uh, particular national and political crises. As far as the 17th century, um, I've always been drawn to the 17th century because there's such a complex and wonderful uh, intermingling of religion and politics in this period. Uh, as I was saying earlier, this is sort of pre-secular era in which um, people are still imagining that God is very active in their everyday lives, that he's very active in civic politics, and that, you know, it's not just a matter of selecting a government that will work or the best government that will work for for this particular people or for this particular nation, but it's a matter of selecting a government that is a godly government and that, that you know, Christ would approve of and would be willing to reign over when he returns. Um, I think as far as these particular authors, uh, these are some of the biggest thinkers in the 17th century in England. You've got John Milton, Thomas Hobbes, Gerard Wynne Stanley. And uh, one of the reasons that I was particularly intrigued by them was because of their creativeness and their innovation in how they are using expectation of the end of the world and the last judgment uh, to essentially uh, politicize eschatology and expectation of, you know, ta scata, the last things of death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Um, and as a result, they're just coming up with some really uh, wonderful and exciting new models of what community might look like uh, in a particular moment in history uh, in anticipation of the last judgment and universal Christian community, which I call ecclesia. Now, you've you've just mentioned in discussion Charles Taylor, and you've gestured towards the Jacques Derrida notion of the poetics of non-events, things that haven't quite mm -hmm. happened yet. And, and, and your book is full of these resonant um, philosophical and, and theoretical allusions, even as you mine these primary texts in, in such a rich and expansive way. Um, as you read these individual texts, which we'll talk about in a second, how did it help you think about the 17th century as a century of apocalypse? There's a huge amount of apocalyptic thinking in this century, isn't there? There is, yeah. And uh, I do find these theorists very helpful. I mean, one of the things that I try to do, it's, it's, I feel like it's a difficult thing to do, even especially for me, but I try to be simultaneously uh, a historicist in my methodology, which is why I'm constantly mining these primary texts and why I'm going to the Huntington Library and the Folger and 
studying marginal comments from the 17th century, but at the same time, I feel like uh, modern philosophers from the late 20th and early 21st century uh, have a great deal to tell us about these things. So, for instance, Derrida, uh, writing in the mid-1980s, as he is thinking about the threat of nuclear war and about how this is, as you said, a non-event, something that hasn't happened yet and maybe never will, but that has this incredible cultural cachet in the sense that it can uh, radically transform and radically shape how people are thinking about politics and society. I find that directly applicable and illuminating in terms of what's going on in the 17th century. The 17th century is, in my opinion, uh, a very unique moment in history, and I think that that many other people, many other scholars share this sentiment, uh, which is why Jurgen Habermas and Craig Calhoun and uh, Wendy Brown, they all look at the 17th century because uh, you can see there sort of the end of an older way of thinking about things, an older, uh, almost post-medieval way of thinking about things, but simultaneously the birth of uh, modern politics, modern theories of sovereignty, theories of uh, natural rights, and of liberal political theory with figures like Locke, uh, and also of modern totalitarianism with mm. figures like Hobbes. Mm. Yeah, and so I think that it's that uh, it's the fact that it's kind of on the cusp of a world that's passing away, and the beginning of another world that makes um, it per- that makes a, a sort of um, dualistic methodology that's using histor- historicism as well as theory uh, particularly fruitful for the study of apocalypse. Now, you, you make these critical moves, philosophical, theoretical moves, but you're also making a very interesting historical move in this book as well. Uh, the question of periodization is a question you've just uh, alluded to. Your subtitle refers to this period as Milton's England. Can you talk us through, Ryan, right. why you decided to use that kind of terminology, sidestepping perhaps um, more traditional historical uh, references to this period? Uh, the main reason, Crawford, was because I wanted to draw out the literariness of the project uh, from the get-go uh, and to sort of distinguish that it wasn't just that I was sort of looking at eschatology and apocalypticism as a historical phenomenon, but I was particularly keen on investigating how literature is simultaneously serving as a sort of arena within the imagination for playing out apocalyptic or eschatological scenarios, but then is also an active agent in shaping how people are thinking about uh, the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. So in Epic, for instance, um, I focus on, in, in Chapter 5, I talk a great deal about how Milton is co-opting Epic form to um, express some of these uh, concerns and even anxieties that he has about England's readiness for judgment at Christ's imminent second coming. But at the same time, his use of revelation and his use of apocalyptic and end-time uh, discourse is uh, galvanizing the epic tradition with something altogether new uh, that we hadn't really seen before. Um, yeah. Hmm. One of the big themes that runs through the book is the distinction between nation, excuse me, nation and ecclesia. Could you talk us through what this distinction means for you and how it plays out in the selection of texts that you've chosen to examine? Sure. the uh, The big question that I was trying to tackle when I when I first started working on this project was 
what essentially uh, does it mean to be an Englishman if you're anticipating that the end of the world is about to happen? What value is there, for instance, in national identities if everybody's about to soon become part of this universal Christian community? Um, and these, this sort of tension between these two ways of thinking about community, these two ways of thinking about these two systems of politics uh, are kind of distilled in this tension that I trace throughout the book between nation and ecclesia. Ecclesia in Latin just means church. And here I'm sort of drawing on Reformation theology uh, where Luther and uh, Calvin and Zwingli are talking about ecclesia uh, militants, which is the church that's still on earth and alive and still fighting the good fight. That's why they're militants. And then you've got ecclesia triumphants which is the church triumphant, which is uh, those saved Christians who are in heaven already with Christ, and how at the end of the world they really come together uh, and merge to form Ecclesia Universalis, which is the church universal. Um, and one of the things that I noticed when I was studying these particular texts was that there is this uh, undeniable and oftentimes fascinating tension between attempts to sort of cobble together a sense of English identity in the midst of all these national crises like civil wars and the execution of the king um, against this impending sense that uh, universal Christian community is imminent and that everybody will uh, very shortly uh, be part of this community. Not necessarily everybody, you know, but but hopefully just the faithful <laughs> will uh, eventually be part of this. As far as why I chose these authors, I think that Milton as a as a radical uh Christian, Christopher Hill in the in the 70s did a lot of work on exposing Milton's radical Christianity and I think that much of uh, Milton's scholarship today is very indebted to this. David Lowenstein more recently has done uh some excellent studies on Milton's radical beliefs. But as a radical Christian, Milton, uh, sort of like, you know, how I was raised as a conservative Baptist, is just very concerned with what it means for the nation if Christ is about to return at any moment. And so one of the things that you can see Milton doing is trying to reconcile these two disparate communities. You've got the nation on one hand, which is very... Um, which is very imperfect and is finite uh, and is uh, in some ways sort of um, clearly clearly defined within a prescribed territory. On the other hand, you've got Ecclesia, which is perfect and infinite and is somewhat nebulous uh, and ephemeral because it doesn't have a clearly defined boundary in which it's operating. Um, and the, the going back again to the question of uh, why Milton's England, I think again that one of the things that makes Milton particularly uh, germane to this discussion uh, and his particular unique contribution is that he is thinking through these things in terms of narrative and in terms of of uh, literary forms and what a um, form like epic or sonnet might be able to tell us, what sort of truths, for instance, poetry might be able to reveal about this idea that the, the end of the world is about to to occur. And I think that with the other uh, writers in particular, I was also fascinated by the role that narrative was playing in all of this. So that even with somebody like Hobbes, who you might not consider particularly literary, uh, although he actually does do a great, a great number of literary works. He does a translation of Thucydides. He does translations of Homer. Um, and he does write poems on his own. They're not particularly good poems, hmm. but uh, you know, he is, 
He is a literary writer in his own right. Uh, how even Hobbes is looking at biblical narrative and the literary nature of the ancient Hebrew Bible and is concerned with reinventing and transforming that narrative to suit his own purposes. So I think that to summarize, I think that uh, the particular contribution I wanted to make, there have been a number of uh, critics who have focused on apocalypticism, uh, yourself included, but going back to Patrick Collinson uh, and there's a sort of tradition of uh, very brilliant historians who have done great work on apocalypticism in this period, but I wanted National Reckonings to make a distinctly literary uh, mm-hmm. contribution to that conversation. Hmm. So your subtitle, Ryan, to National Reckonings is The Last Judgment in Literature in Milton's England. And I suppose it'd be helpful for the listeners to know that you've got a five-chapter structure and your first mm-hmm. and last chapters are focused on Milton. Milton very much bookends this discussion Disney. Mm-hmm. Now, the first chapter, chapter one, uh, where you take us into Milton for the first time, we're talking there about the 1645 poems, uh, Lycidas, uh, warrants a very substantial discussion in that particular chapter. You, you take us through some of his sonnets and some of the later sonnets as well and show how they form a, a, a discrete unit, which is um, more than just a kind of great man interpretation that a lot of critics have favoured. There's a a consistency and coherence to this body of, of work in the sonnet form. T- tell us about your reading of Lysidas and then about how your sense of uh, the, the sonnets cohere. Sure. Uh, I think that, well, so chapter one is really focusing on this biblical idea of the remnant that shall be saved. In Greek, it's hupalema sotheisatai. Uh, and it's a it's a theme that occurs in some of the earliest texts. You can see it, for instance, in Isaiah uh, and other Hebrew books of prophecy. You see it in the Psalms also. And it carries forward to the New Testament where it kind of accrues a different meaning, which is um, uh, it's Luther's idea of essentially ecclesia militants, the people who are alive at the end of the world when Christ eventually returns. And so chapter one is looking at how Milton, as uh, a religious radical, someone who's very much convinced that Christ might be returning at any moment, is playing with this idea of the faithful remnant as a way of salvaging the nation. So if he can, if he, if his project, as I argue, is to reconcile, uh, nation and ecclesia and to kind of collapse the distances, conceptual or temporal or spatial between them, then his strategy for doing that is to imagine England, imagine the nation as the faithful remnant. Uh, and this is quite different than, uh, just to clarify, this is quite different than what Collinson and other folks had done as far as identifying England as the elect nation. I think that here uh, this has a particularly apocalyptic significance um, so that the expectation of the end of the world is really reshaping how Milton is thinking about the nation. And with Lycidas, uh, I was making the argument that he is, for the first time, sort of um, exploring what it might mean if, for the uh, faithful remnant to reside in one person and for the nation simultaneously to sort of reside within one person. And I guess what I mean by that is that in the 1630s, Milton is frustrated with the corrupt clergy. He's frustrated with um, the state of things under Charles I's rule. Um, and he doesn't have uh, 
at least in Lycidas, he doesn't demonstrate the kind of political or patriotic optimism that you see in Paradise Lost and in some of his later works and certainly in The Ready and Easy Way, which is this treatise he publishes right on the eve Mm -hmm. of Charles II's return, um, advocating for uh, Republican government. So he's still holding out hope, even even as Charles is sort of knocking on the doorstep of England. Um, And in Lycidas, you don't see that, I think. I think in Lycidas, you see a very pessimistic view of the nation to the extent that Milton is sort of searching for where the nation might reside. And he locates it in uh, his departed friend, in Edward King, who's figured as Lycidas in the poem. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that particular section of chapter one, I'm sort of I use this idea of triangulated nationalism uh, as a way of explore as a way of kind of mapping out what Milton is doing in Lycidas. And I argue that Milton is uh, adopting this method of triangulated nationalism from his first elegy in which he is sort of searching for where he belongs as he uh, navigates between his time at Cambridge and then his time in London at his parents' house and then uh, the Irish Sea where his best friend Charles uh, Diodati is residing at the time. And so as Milton is sort of moving between these three locations, he's searching for uh, essentially a place to anchor himself for identity that might... um, give him integrity of character and uh, a foundation upon which he can sort of build his life. And I think you see something quite similar in Lycidas, which is that uh, you can see the body of Lycidas. Well, you can see the the poetic speaker uh, alternating between London and then where you have the corrupt clergy, clergy between Cambridge, uh, where the boys studied together, and then between the Irish Sea, where you see the body of Lycidas um, floating upon the water as far north as the Hebrides and as far south as as uh, the continent. Um, and I thought that that was a particularly genius uh, way of thinking about nationalism on Milton's part uh, because he is trying to, you know, in the process of searching for Lycidas and for searching for what it means for um Lycidas to be redeemed as the faithful remnant anticipating Christ's return, it requires this radical reorientation of national boundaries, national identities in the process, as well as uh, a rethinking about the speaker himself of what it means to be um, English. Uh, And then as far as the sonnets go, the next section is on um, Sonnet 18, which is Milton's sonnet uh, on the late massacre in Piedmont, which is on the Waldensians. Um, The argument that I make regarding the sonnets is that, um, you know, Milton was very uh, careful, as Stephen Dabransky has shown, on with uh, making sure that everything was printed exactly as he wanted it uh, and that print that it was printed. He, He had a very heavy hand involved in the printing, which was somewhat unusual for the time. And I sort of build upon that observation and argue that uh, sonnets 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 are all part of a group of sonnets that are addressing the state of religious reformation in England. And that consequently, when you have a poem that's about the Waldensians, who are a community of Protestants in uh, the Swiss Alps, an ancient community, they go back to the Hussites uh, and even earlier, according to some accounts, 
so when you have a poem that's ostensibly about uh, a uh, nation or a group of people that has nothing to do with England, um, it is by extension uh, a poem that's very much about English identity and that outlines in the Waldensian massacre what uh, the faithful remnant in England might do in response to religious persecution in their own day. So Milton is really sort of presenting England and the Waldensians as sister nations. And the Waldensians, who were um, notorious in Milton's period because they were uh, massacred in the 1650s and and nearly wiped out by uh, Catholic overlords, uh, Milton really sees this as a sort of didactic uh, exempla that England can and should follow in terms of this is what it means to be faithful at the end of the world. This is what Luther had looked forward to in terms of tribulations before Christ's return. The Waldensians have experienced these, and then um, England should now follow suit and and imitate their faithful model. Mm. Now, when we come to chapter three in the book, which talks about ranters and diggers and the persons of Abbeys or Cop and Gerard Winstanley, we come to very different views of how an English end times community might be formed, don't we? Can you can you tell right. us about the, the kinds of visions of the end and of renewed community that diggers and ranters were promoting and perhaps the challenges they faced? Sure. I think that, so for, uh, with regard to the diggers, uh, I talk about, I developed this argument uh, for uh, Winstanley's eco-eschatology, which mm-hmm. is a sort of ecological approach to the end of the world. Um, and I was focusing in particular with for him and for Kopp, uh, for whom I talk about embodied eschatology. I'm focusing on how eschatology really is uh, a tactile experience for them. Mm-hmm. They're so focused on um, uh, on the ordinary stuff of life, in, in a sense, and what that can sort of teach them about the end of the world and about the second coming of Christ, or how it can show them that, that Christ has essentially already returned. So it's similar to Milton uh, in the sense that because they're all religious radicals, they're uh, very much uh, anticipating Christ's imminent return. They're anticipating reckoning upon the nation. Um, Whereas Milton, I think, is very concerned with salvaging the nation and redeeming it. Again, you have that idea of of his uh, patriotic optimism, which Paul Stevens has written about. Uh, I think that Kopp and Win Stanley are quite different. And in that chapter, I talk a great deal about counter-nationalism and how uh, the diggers, for instance, are trying to eke out their own community of of a faithful remnant, essentially, that exists in opposition and distinction from the rest of the nation, which they're sort of seeing as corrupt. One of the things that characterizes the faithful remnant, especially in the Old Testament, is that it's always a faithful group that emerges from a corrupt nation. So if Israel is uh, has given way to idols and things like that, then the faithful remnant are those who tr- stay true to Yahweh and who emerge from that nation holding to the old ways. And both the diggers and the ranters figure themselves and their followers uh, in that vein. So for when Stanley, in his eco-eschatology, I argue that uh, dirt becomes a sort of uh, litmus test for faithfulness. If you're willing to kind of get dirty and get down in the dirt with the diggers and uh, begin this work of universal reformation, 
then that dirt will literally sort of mark you as one of the faithful, um, as opposed to these rich and wealthy and affluent people who are living in the city and wouldn't dare get some dirt on themselves. And I think that with a Beezer cop, you see something quite similar with human bodies and with this sort of ranter willingness to uh, to touch bodies and to embrace bodies in a way that's socially unacceptable. So cop, for instance, makes a great to do in his treatises about how he goes around London and he's always fondling uh, a prostitute here or or hugging a beggar or kneeling before a vagrant or something like that. And so he's performing these strange bodily acts, and he's also engaging in forms of bodily touch that are considered uh, not really acceptable. But again, Kopp is using this as a way of distinguishing the ranters, whom he calls the anointed, from uh, from uh, those who are not, from the unenlightened. Uh, so essentially, those who are the faithful remnant are those who are willing to be engaging in these forms of bodily contact and bodily movement that would be considered inane. And in that sense, he he sort of puts into practice this embodied eschatology. One of the things I really enjoyed about that chapter, Ryan, was the way in which you described uh, both ranters and diggers, both Cop and Winstanley, promising too much in terms of the imminentization of the eschaton and then having to very rapidly roll back in different kinds of ways to spiritualize it or postpone it in, in, in different kinds of ways that, that the experience is not quite yet. It's not quite available to be experienced or achieved. How did that happen? Right. I think that with regard to Win Stanley, one of the things that they do as far as eschatology, in one sense, it's very tactile for them, this idea of salvation uh, requires a sort of tactile medium, but at the same time, there's a phenomenological aspect to their eschatology. So when Stanley, for instance, makes the argument that the day of judgment has already arrived and that it's dawning in the minds of the faithful and that it's not so much uh, a reckoning of good and bad as it is a realization or a revelation that work is good and that there, that social class is a bad thing and should be abolished. And so he, uh, at the same, it, I mean, it very much depends upon paradox in his thinking. On the one hand, you've got eschatology that's very physical and material, uh, and it requires a, a particular object, in this case, dirt, in order to be, um, uh, to be, uh, carried out. But then on the other hand, you've got, uh, this very phenomenalized and psychologized eschatology, or, or psychologized expectation of what the last judgment is. Mm. Um, and I show that in, uh, psychologizing the last judgment and rendering it into essentially a decision to participate in the work of digging or not, mm -hmm. that this is what Win Stanley says is reckoning. This is sort of, uh, winnowing the chaff uh, or, or the grain from the chaff and separating the goats from the sheep, um, that in doing so, he removes the threat of reckoning in a sort of real historical or political sense. And that for this reason, this is why he backtracks. So in the in 1648-49, uh, you can see him developing this concept of a phenomenalized uh, last judgment, one that's occurring within the mind. But Ultimately, the persecution that the diggers face is undeniably physical. I mean, they're being attacked uh, by people not on horseback. They're being beaten down by their neighbors and things like that. 
And COP needs to find some way of retaliating against this. And so what he does is he reverts to uh, a sort of more standard and orthodox idea of the Last Judgment as something occurring within history, something that might happen at any moment. Because once you have phenomenalized the Last Judgment and reckoning and it simply becomes a decision within the mind, you lose the fear of damnation. You lose the fear of hellfire and punishment at Christ's hand when he returns. And so by returning uh, to a historical idea of the Last Judgment, he regains that and then can use the threat of reckoning against his enemies. Mm. And Kopp does something quite similar uh, in the sense that Kopp also is concerned with the Last Judgment as a sort of dawning within the mind. Um, and this gets him into hot water with the authorities because uh shouting things like that and then sort of encouraging scurrilous behavior uh is not something that uh the uh, officials in England or in London are really going to let slide so his declaration that the last judgment has come uh entails in his mind the acceptance of the truth that is Paul as St Paul would put it to the pure all things are pure so now that the last judgment has arrived there can't be any sin and so any sort of physical touch or, or even a fornication must be perfectly acceptable because we're now in the millennial reign of Christ and and uh, and to the pure all things are pure. So this eventually leads to cop being arrested uh, and imprisoned, and he does a number of things when he's brought to court, like throwing nuts and refusing to take his hat off and sort of mumbling to himself. And people have different ideas as to whether this is legitimate madness or whether this is feigned madness. My personal uh, opinion is that it's feigned uh, and that it's something that I, I think it's it's reductive of cops' uh, rhetorical and intellectual brilliance to sort of say that he just succumbs to madness because uh, the things that he publishes later, his uh, return to the ways of truth and his recantation after his imprisonment, these were were texts that were presumably ordered by the court for him to publish to sort of denounce his previous views. They seem to me to be very rhetorically savvy and rhetorically stylish. Mm. Uh, and I don't know that somebody who's insane could maybe do that to the same degree that Kopp does. And what he essentially does is rather than return to a historical last judgment, he uh, he litters his treatises with little clues that suggest that he has not in fact recanted uh, and that the faithful will sort of read between the lines of his recantation and see that um, he's actually holding true to this idea that the last judgment has already dawned. So for instance, he'll talk about, you know, on one page, he'll say something about, well, uh, I, uh, I believe that the quick and the dead will be judged by uh, Christ at the end of the world which is really just a rehashing of the Book of Common Prayer and the Catechism and isn't necessarily something that Kopp thinks himself since he's abandoned his distinctive prose style. But then on the next page, he'll talk about how uh, he was out again one day and the Last Judgment kind of ambushed him and forced him to give up his silver and uh, help the poor around him. And I make the argument that uh, in this way, Kopp's um, embodied eschatology lives on because in a way that Win Stanley's does not. I mean, after Win Stanley abandons his phenomenalized Last Judgment, he never writes about it again, and you never hear about it. Um, but I think that Cop's idea of um, 
the last judgment dawning in all flesh, as he would put it, uh, remains more vital for that reason because flesh is, as Kopp says, everywhere, and it's hard to eradicate it. So even after he's been imprisoned, um, his followers are still sort of remaining true, uh, at least for a while. Hmm. Well, Ryan, you've given us a wonderful taster of, of some of the big themes and, and readings that you, that you develop in, in, in this book, National Reckonings, The Last Judgment and Literature in Milton's England. What kind of impact do you hope that your book will make in the field? Well, I hope that uh, it will. Um, I hope that it will provide a necessary corrective to discussions on the origins of political thinking, of modern political thinking in the 17th century. Quentin Skinner in the Cambridge School in the late 20th century did a great deal of work on uh, the classical, the uh, Greco-Roman origins of political thought in the period, and I see national reckonings as complementing that and contributing to a sort of recent return to religion by emphasizing uh, the Judeo-Christian origins of those same ideas. Milton is a great example of this because Milton's republicanism is, of course, classical, as a great number of scholars have shown, uh, and he has people like Cicero and Cato uh, in mind when he's writing about English republicanism and trying to sort of revive a republican model of what that might be. But at the same time, he has in mind uh, the ancient Jewish Republic, which, you, which is described in the book of Judges, where you have people like Samson and uh, Deborah and Ehud who are elected by the people and, and also chosen by God who are ruling the people without a sort of hereditary line. So I think that's one contribution that um, I would like the book to make. Another is simply um, relearning and reminding ourselves of the significance that apocalyptic thought more specifically, but uh, more generally uh, religious thought and belief in things that that are to come, as Paul would say, uh, have in shaping cultural and political and social values at this time. The great 20th century uh, Herbert critic, Rosamund Tooth, used to say that um, this was a sort of Protestant, a lost, lost alphabet of Protestant belief that we've essentially um, discarded in the 20th, 21st centuries, that it's something that's beyond us. And so one of the things I see National Reckonings doing is hopefully trying to excavate this language, this alphabet, and to teach us to speak and to think in the ways that Milton and Hobbes and their contemporaries were thinking and speaking in the period. And I think, you know, on a most, on a, on a more basic level, I certainly just hope that this book inspires people to realize how exciting, uh, these writers are, uh, whether they're talking about apocalypticism or not. I think that, uh, Milton and Hobbes, Win Stanley, Henry Vaughn, these are some of the most intriguing, uh, and, uh, illuminating writers I've ever come across personally. And I, uh, find studying their their works extremely rewarding, um, not just intellectually, but you know, but even morally. Uh, Milton is a very admirable person to be working on in that sense, and so I hope that people will uh, maybe regain a uh, or find a an appreciation for uh, how terrific this period is and how um, rewarding these authors can be to study. Well, I'm sure the book will do exactly that. Thanks for coming on to the show today, Ryan, to talk about this new book, National Reckonings, The Last Judgment and Literature in Milton's England, just published by Cornell. It's a wonderful 
um, sequence of readings that builds up a really impressive case for the complexity and, and wealth of that interaction between apocalyptic ideas and, and literary expression. So thanks for your time, Ryan, and take care. Thanks very much, Crawford. I enjoyed the talk a lot. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.